All right, if you have never or never heard me before, after Aspen prays for me and talks to me, you're probably like, okay, this guy's up here somewhere. I'm about to bring that back down to the earthly level real quick. Um, I can't help myself. I end up helping with coaching as much as I can. And there's a circumstance that my wife and children were laughing about for quite a, a little while, uh, about a couple weeks ago. I, I was in the circumstance where I was coaching my kids' soccer game, and it's middle school soccer. And it was one of those times where the other team had the ball, and they had a two-on-one, and they're breaking towards our goal. And one of the kids runs past our last defender, and the other kid passes it. And I, I just can't help the that I feel where the kid was offside, so I do what coaches do, and I yell, offsides! But the ref didn't really like that much. And... I want you to know that for me, it's mostly an involuntary reaction to this situation. And so I was warned not to do it again the first time. But then it happened again, like a second time and a third time. And I, and I was trying, but it's like when you're in that situation and you're coaching and your heart is in the moment, like it's just middle school soccer is really, really important, Right? Like, you should yell about it, you should scream about it, you should have the ref get angry about it because it's sixth through eighth grade co-ed soccer on an elementary-sized field and it's seven on seven instead of ten on ten. Some of these kids have never played soccer before in their life and they'll probably never play soccer again. And it's critically important. Youth sports, right? It matters. Let's get angry about it. Let's disagree and meet in the parking lot, right? Listen. Not to rain on your parade, but 20 years from now, the sports that your kid played really won't matter. What will matter is the condition of their faith. Very few kids become pro athletes, but every kid will need a foundation for their marriage. Every child will need a foundation that's strong enough to carry the integrity that is necessary for a godly life. Every child will need instilled in them the scriptural truth of the word of God. And they will need that forever. And my concern is that our culture is much more comfortable with the men screaming and shouting and crying and taking their shirt off and painting their chest to support their team and be passionate about their sports team. But when it comes to the things of God, there's little to no passion. And what happens when our culture grows comfortable like that, we end up with a generation that follows us that does not know God personally. And the thing that we would say is the most important thing to pass on to our kids gets superseded by a love for a sport or a hobby. And I'm not saying don't enjoy a sport or a hobby because obviously I'm guilty of that, right? But make sure your kids know what your first love is. Because if we don't pass it on properly, we'll see what happened. In your reading this week, we were in the section called Judges, where God raised up these leaders who were both political and spiritual leaders for Israel in a very difficult time. And right after Joshua, who was the leader who brought Israel into the promised land and into battle, after he passed away, this is the description of what happened next. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says, After that, after the death of Joshua, the, the whole gener- after the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, 
Another generation grew up that, neither, that, that knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I want to make it clear that the, the mistake wasn't in the generation that was coming up. The mistake was in the generation that preceded it. For a generation to grow up not knowing the Lord, it means fathers and mothers abdicated their responsibility to their children. And I want to make it clear to you because this can get muddy sometimes for people because there's a perception. I bring my kids to church so that they can do the church thing with them because my kids are problematic. They're acting up. They're making bad choices. They're acting just like me and I bring them to church to fix them. Now listen, the church wants to assist you, but the the job has not been assigned to the church to disciple your children. The job has been assigned to the family. And we want to strengthen and be another voice for you. But primarily in your home, you should be the example and the voice of discipleship. And so our church tries to do some things to, to, to give you resources. And if you didn't know these are available, they're available for you. Every week, we send a text message out that includes questions from kids' ministry and what your kid is learning so that you can engage with them and continue the conversation that happens on Sunday morning. When they get into youth ministry, I understand that when you pick your child up and they are 6th to 12th grade and you ask them, what did you learn about youth? They were like, nothing. Somebody ate something gross. That's all that happened at youth group. We actually send a text message that hits right at dismissal time at youth group that it says, we talked about humility tonight. Ask your child this question about humility. And so you have the prompts to engage and continue the conversation because we understand one of the best things that we can do for a child to grow up knowing the Lord is to create that relationship with their parents where they talk about their faith, where they can ask questions, express doubts, talk about what God is doing. Did you know that 94% of people who become Christians, 94% make the decision before they're 18 years old? Do you understand how important it is to have these conversations with our children, to instill in them the truth of the word of God as they are growing? 94%. That's why it's critical that we reach into broken homes. That's why it's critical that we give people who have been disconnected from the church and disconnected from God for years, why we give them an excuse to come and try church out again. Why we give our city opportunities to come and see what this is all about, even if they've never been to a church before. We have to take these steps and we have to put the gospel in front of people of all ages. Because raising up the next generation is one of the primary responsibilities of the church. Seeing families equipped to disciple the children, it's a responsibility because we do not want legacy to be that we left the next generation out to dry. And so practically, I want to make sure that it's on your radar. Uh, Easter is coming, church. All right? And I hope you're excited by that. If, if our Easter scares you, you're probably long gone by now or brand new. But I want to tell you, we, we go big at Easter. We, we have a helicopter that comes and it drops eggs on the field. This year, we're going to use the football field. So there's going to be bleachers and bathrooms closer. It's going to be a better experience than it's ever been. It gets better every single year. We typically have about 300 people at Gulfside Church on a Sunday morning right now. Um, at last Easter, I think our attendance was like 860 something. 860 names that we had. 
That's people who got connected. We got to share the gospel into hundreds of households that have not been connected to the church. And I am praying that, that we hit that goal again and we see people come to Christ again and that we see children responding to the gospel message and kids ministry again because we have to raise up the next generation. Right, church? Amen. All right. So that's what we're going to do. And so we, have, we, we cheer. We also need you, we need you to cheer for that, but we also need you to sign up. We're, we're going to be recruiting volunteers for kids' ministry um, to help with the Easter egg drop. And I understand it's Easter Sunday and there's a lot of family go, um, stuff going on, but I want to ask you to go ahead and plan on attending one and serving one. We need all hands on deck on Easter morning, and we're going to see an awesome move of God on that day, I believe. And so just go ahead and mark Easter Sunday. It's a day to be at Gulfside because we don't want that to be our legacy. We want to be someone. I, I was telling someone earlier as they were coming in, I was like, you know, if, if Gulfside has 300 people on a Sunday morning, almost 100 of them are below fifth grade. And they were like, what? Young kids in church? It's not by accident. It's because we show them that we care with their environments, with the way that we care for families. And I thank you for the way that you've served families in the past. And I believe greater things are even ahead. So thank you for committing to that as a church. Because this is what we see. When we forget the next generation, we miss steps, we miss blessings, and we miss opportunities. And if you've been reading along with us in the story, you might be surprised if you haven't read through the course of scripture before, how often Israel is like, amazing sign from God, doing what I'm not supposed to do. Amazing sign from God, doing what I'm not supposed to do. And so the cycle goes. And it's like, I, as we've been reading this, I, I've, I told my small group as we were discussing it this week, I was like, I wanna go through and reread scripture again and just keep a tally for every single time that Israel fell away. Because they, they get into this cycle, and I'll put this up on the screen. This cycle, it's like disobedience, it leads to punishment. And then it's followed by repentance, which leads to deliverance. And I want to tell you something about this cycle. When God allows something into our life, or he sends discipline into our life, it's there for a purpose to bring us back home. It's not hate, it's love. A father who loves his child disciplines his child. It's to bring you back to the point that you're supposed to be. And God is always ready to deliver. God is always ready to put his arms around us. But in speaking to Israel, he said so many times to gather you to me as a hen gathers her chicks in, but you were not willing. And I want to make sure that you clearly see that God's desire, even if you've fallen away from him for a time, his desire is to bring you back in. And difficulty is designed to wake you up to what you've been doing and how you've been living and bring you back to the straight and narrow path. It's his mercy, it's his compassion, it's his love that is unending. It's one of the most consistent themes is the, this falling away and God bringing back. But one of the things within that theme, a sub-theme of this they'd get caught into is this, this truth that God uses the most unlikely people in circumstances. God uses the most unlikely people. And as we get into the section of judges, one of the main people that you read about this last week was a judge named Deborah. Now, I want to give you context. In this time and place, women were often treated as property, not people. In this time and place, a woman's testimony in court was typically not allowed. They had a low and destructive view of women in this culture for the most part. So it should be shocking to you 
When you read Judges and you read the account that the judge, the main leader that God sent to Israel for this time, God called a woman. First thing you you should know about Deborah is Deborah had a close walk with the Lord. She spiritually was strong. She was not just a political leader. She was a spiritual leader. She was a prophetess. She prophesied and it happened. God gave her words. She said them and they came to pass. And you're, you're gonna see this. It, it, but before I get to her passage, 2 Chronicles 16, this is a passage that always kind of sticks in my head because one of my deans in my college would always recite this to us. He said, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. You can put this on the screen. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. I want you to know that in difficult times, God is looking for people whose heart will be turned towards him. And it's not gender specific. God is looking for a person. Scripture tells us that he created man in, in male and female form. He created them in his image. God is looking for a person whose heart is ready to see the strength of God on display in their life. And the person in this generation that he found was Deborah. I want you to hear what Judges chapter 4 through 5 said about Deborah. It said, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lepidith, was leading Israel at the time. I'm going to rewind that part. She was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Deborah was a leader. And I understand that this is a touchy subject. And I understand that there's division amongst Christians on this subject. And so what you're, gonna, you're not going to hear Paul's opinion. I'm going to give you some straight passages about this. And you can digest them, you can ingest them, you can refuse them if you want, but I want you to see clearly what Scripture says about women. And I'm not going to give you interpretation, I'm just going to give you the passages. Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, you can check it, it lists Miriam as a prophet. Women, if you've been told that you have no role in the church, I want your ears and attention mode to this. Exodus 15, 20 List Miriam as a prophet, which means she was giving, given prophecy to deliver to other people. Second Chronicles chapter 34, Huldah was a prophetess. When the nation had fallen away from God, God spoke through Huldah, and she didn't speak from her own authority. She would speak saying, thus saith the Lord. Esther spoke up, and God used her to save the entire nation when they were in jeopardy. When Jesus was living and teaching, he spoke to women which was shunned in the culture. And he would, like, for example, the woman at the well. In that passage, there's a very powerful contrast that she was a broken woman. She was in multiple relationships. She was living with a man who was not her husband. But Jesus spent time with her and spoke to her. And when they came back with food, they did not come back with people. But when she heard the gospel message, she went to the town and she came back and she came back with people. And the contrast in that passage is is purposeful. That she did something that the disciples did not do. She reached people with the message. The very first people to see the resurrected Christ was women. In Romans chapter 16 verse 1, Phoebe is commended as a servant of the church. 
In Romans chapter 16, verse 7, Junia is listed as outstanding among the apostles. Here's the regular people. Here's the apostles. Here's the outstanding among the apostles. Junia is in that list. Colossians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul sends greetings to the church that meets at Nympha's house. Acts 21, all four of Philip's daughters were prophesying. And I want you to see clearly that throughout the scope of Scripture, God speaks and moves and works through women as well as men. And there are scriptural roles that are divided within the household, and there are callings, but you are not to live your life on mute. You have a message, you ha- and the spiritual gifts are not gender-specific. They are given where the Spirit of God goes, and God has placed gifts in you. I want to illustrate it this way. I, 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 can, I can, one of the first times where, when I was moving towards God, like I, I wasn't even really a Christian yet, I don't think. But I knew I had a desire to be closer connected to God. But I, I felt like I didn't deserve to approach God. And so I just did some background stuff where like, you know, couldn't be too churchy yet. And so I, I'd help stack the chairs at the end of youth group when it was my junior year of high school. And my youth pastor's wife, who is a woman of faith, she took notice. And I've talked to her and my youth pastor, Steve, about this. And she doesn't even really remember doing it. But I'll always remember her doing it because she came over and she's like, God, Paul, God is doing something in your life. Like I see the way that you're, you're changing and I see the way that you're serving and God is going to do something in your life. And it was such a simple comment, but the way that God spoke through her to me, it, it helped change the course that my life was going. And I can think back to different women who were Sunday school teachers. I can think back to different times where there's struggle and someone who was a woman in the church prayed for me or prayed for us or prayed for the future of Gulfside Church and spoke words of faith over us and the way it impacted us. And there's so many women in the church that don't believe that they should have a voice or have a gift, but I need you to see how, how false that narrative is in your mind. And so what I wanna ask is if you're sitting in here today, and I want you to call back to memory. Has there been a time in the development of your faith, and when you've been growing spiritually, where a woman spoke into your life, or helped teach, or correct something in your life that helped your faith develop? If that's true of you, would you just stand to your feet for a minute? Women of the church, look around. Look how needed your voice is. Look how God has used people like you before in the past. The Spirit of God moves through you too. And we need you to know that you have a calling. Amen, church? Go ahead and take your seat. Thank you. In Judges chapter 4, verse 6, I want you to see the way that Deborah spoke. She said, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you. She's speaking to Barak, who was, a, who was another leader, a leader of military um, groups. And, and she said, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. Barak said to her in verse eight, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. This is how she was viewed. 
Verse nine, she said, certainly I will go with you, she said, Deborah, but because of the course of action, the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours for the Lord will deliver Caesarea into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. That's how she was viewed. That's how God used her. In a culture where women were viewed as property, God raised up a woman who led men. And this is not to take away the organization that's given to the family in Ephesians where it's told that husbands, we should serve and love our wives the way that Christ loved the church. It's not to take away from that, but it's to understand that God calls women to great things too. And the church will be the healthiest. The church will be the strongest. Women take a hold of the gifts and the callings that God has placed on their shoulders and uses them with might. And if it feels too big, too difficult to accomplish, that's a good sign that God is in it. Another, another example of just the unlikely way that God works is Gideon, the next person that we read about as we were, we were studying judges this week. Gideon, he was a person who was from one of the weakest tribes, and then he's listed as being one of the weakest people in the weakest tribes. So when you think of God doing something to relieve oppression, God doing something to show his hand powerfully to Israel, God's going to go with one of the big names, right? One of the big dudes, one of the guys who's taller than 5'7". Like someone big, someone strong, someone who has gifts. God said, no, it's going to be you. I, and just to give you some, some context to the situation, we're going to read with Gideon. Gideon was, uh, he, he, the, the society was being oppressed by their neighbors, by the neighboring nations. So much so that the Midianites were watching. Whenever the Israelites' fields were starting to grow up, they would go and just destroy the fields. If grain was being collected and harvested, they'd let the Israelites do the work. They'd come and steal what they've collected. And so the, the people of Israel were getting hungry. They were in a very difficult circumstance and they had been far from God. And then God begins to speak and move in Gideon's situation. And so Judges chapter six, verses 11 and 12. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belongs to Joash, the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in, the, in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. I want to make sure you see this clearly. He's threshing the wheat in the wine press because he's afraid if Midianites see him, he's going to lose his work. He's hiding in a wine press, threshing grain. One of the weakest clans, one of the weakest people. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Was this sarcasm? What is, he's hiding. He's in a wine press. How embarrassing is this? And an angel of the Lord shows up and describes him as mighty warrior. What, what, what is going on here? Listen, God sees the end before you even get to the beginning. God speaks life when you feel like you're still in death. And God knew the outcome before Gideon knew that there was even a calling. And Gideon did become courageous. He did become a mighty warrior, but he didn't start that way. The place that he started was with receiving the calling of God. And Gideon struggled with it because he was like, okay, incredible miracle, but I need 
Like for me, just the angel probably isn't enough. The angel speaking and saying, hey, here's your calling. Okay, that should be good. But Gideon struggled because his calling wasn't just go feed the hungry. His calling was go fight a battle that makes no military sense. Put yourself and your people in a situation where you would likely get slaughtered. And so he, his faith was so weak, he continued to ask for signs. But God described him as a mighty warrior. How would you describe yourself? I think there's a lot of lies that we believe about ourselves that hinder us from even approaching the calling that God has put on us. We, we've, call, we've been called to be warriors. We've been called to be ambassadors for Christ. We've been called to be the hands and feet of Christ, but we have been living scared. We've been afraid to speak, afraid to go, afraid to give, afraid to make a difference, afraid to step forward in our city. We've been surrounded by fear far too much as a church across the culture of America, and we should be living with courage because God has said that he will make us successful. That as we push the kingdom forward, nothing, the gates of hell, the place where the schemes of hell are made, will not advance against the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will reign. But we've been living afraid. I like the way that Michelangelo talked about creating a sculpture because it reminds me of the way that God shapes our life. Michelangelo made these incredibly detailed sculptures out of single blocks of marble. I mean, it's incredible when you look at the way that he would make clothing and, and hands and feet and hair. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. He was asked about this, and this is how he responded to one of the questions. He said, the sculpture is already complete within the marble block. Before I start my work, it's already there. I just have to chisel away the superfluous material. I tell you that God has placed in you the gift that is there, but there's probably just some things that need to be removed from your life to let that gift flourish. You ever heard the term addition by subtraction? Sometimes God removes something from your life that you thought you really needed a relationship that you were dependent upon that he takes out of your life so that you can finally grow, moving you away from your comfort zone and you feel like he's taken things away, but he's finally put you in a place where you can grow and become the person that you need to be. Addition through subtraction. There's things that God needs to refine and remove out of your vocabulary, out of your thought processes, out of your fears that he needs to remove out of your psychology so that you can walk in faith and trust with him. There's addition that God can make by removing some things in your life. Gideon, he was, he was in hiding and God was putting him in circumstances where his faith, would have, his faith would have to be on display. And Gideon started off asking for sign and asking for sign and then moved to a place where when he was ready for war, he had 32,000 of his countrymen with him. And God in all of his military intelligence said, you know what, that's too many people for you to fight this fight with. If you fight this fight with 32,000 people, you might think that you won it on your own. So ask if anybody's scared, and if they're scared, then let them go home. And Gideon probably thought, okay, that's good. We'll get rid of maybe like 50 or 60 people because we don't want those scaredy cats anyway. 22,000 went home. 32,000 subtracts 22,000, left with 10,000. God said, ah, oh, that's still too many. We were outnumbered at the beginning. You took, you took 22,000 of my people away. Okay, take them to the water and, 
If any of them bend down and drink and kneel and drink water that way, send them home. If they cup water in their hands and they lap it up like a dog, those are, those are your warriors right there, left with 300 people for the battle. If you were someone who were controlled by fear, you'd be ready to run home at this point. 300 people. God calls the unlikely. He puts the unlikely in situations that are unlikely for victory so that when there is victory that arrives, all of the glory goes to where it should be. So that when the victory arrives, when you approach difficult situations in your life, you can call back to memory, say, it didn't make sense for that to work out, but God was in it. And so if God is in it, I don't need to worry about the external circumstances. I need to worry about where God is leading me to. Because he is able, because he is powerful, because he is good, because he is involved. He has not left me out here on this little blue spinning planet to just be by myself, but his hand is on my life. He is with me. He has not forgotten me. God wants his people to learn that lesson. I want to say this about Gideon. It's, Gideon's been described as a man of courage, but Gideon became a man of courage. That's what he became. That's the end result of listening and trusting God. He became a man of courage where he would enter into circumstances that were impossible and trust God for the results. Right now, you might not describe yourself as a person of faith, but God intends to develop you into a person of faith. Band, if you guys want to come out, I'll wrap this thing up. I think there's a lot of lies that we've allowed to saturate our thinking and our psychology and our heart and our faith. And there's lies that we've believed over the truth of Scripture. Uh, another pastor who was teaching the story series, he went and asked his congregation, he said, if there's a lie that's had a grip on your heart for a while, could you write me a sentence that's only five words long to describe that lie and here's some of the results that he got maybe one of these might connect with something you've been battling one of the lies was it's too late for you you messed up too much no one will want you it's never going to happen you will just fail again you're never going to change. You'll, you will always be alone. You failed as a parent. You're just like your dad. You're just like them. God doesn't love you anymore. It'll be like this forever. You've wasted too much time. You are on your own. You don't need any help. God's done giving you chances. Lies like that can immobilize our faith. It can immobilize our trust. We'll run away from faith-filled risks. And those lies, they need to be pulled up out of the ground and thrown away and replaced with the truth of the word of God that is spoke in, spoken in Judges chapter 6, verse 16, where the Lord answered and he spoke this to Gideon, I will be with you. In the face of all of your fears that interrupt any of your callings, 
the thing that you should hold closely to your heart is that God has said he will be with you. When Moses was on the mountain receiving the commandments, he said, if your presence doesn't go with us, I don't want to go. And God said, I'll be with you. When Jacob was receiving his calling, God affirmed him and said, I will be with you. When Jesus spoke to the church, he said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. God has promised to be with you so much so that he says, I send my indwelling spirit to reside with you, to empower you and counsel you and guide you. I'm going to be with you forever from the point that you believe. And the fact that God is with us should give us the courage and the strength to go through any faith-filled risk that God calls us to. Romans describes it this way in chapter 8, verse 31, where the Apostle Paul writes and says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If the God of the universe has said, Child, I need you to go, then what do you have to fear? If the one who knows every day of your life has said, Go and speak, go and share, go and serve, bring what was hidden in the dark out into the light. If God has said to do it, then what do you have to fear? Because joy and peace and blessing is on the other side of that that difficult or scary moment. There are better things ahead for those who have the courage to trust God when he says he'll be with you. Let me pray for you. Father, so thankful that you love us enough to not just guide us, to be with us. And in the places where our heart has been bound up with fear, we pray that we would experience freedom in the church by the truth. Call the unlikely. You empower the weak. And you guide those who listen. So Father, we're ready. Give us the courage we need to become the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?